I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Our text today is verse 14 through 21. In the message of Pentecost, prophecy fulfilled. We last focused on the miracle of Pentecost in the first 13 verses of chapter 2. The power to fulfill God's plan is the Holy Spirit. The reach of God's plan is all nations. The focus of God's plan is His glory and His name. The method to implement God's plan is the church. That's us, those of us who are born again and who know Jesus Christ. The word Pentecost means 50th. And in the Old Testament, it was the time of the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the First Fruits. And at Pentecost, as we saw in the early verses of chapter 2, there were some miraculous phenomenon that took place. There was a violent rushing wind that filled the place. There was the visible sign of tongues of fire resting on each person. The hearers were able to hear the gospel message and understand it in their own language. And as we approach the remainder of chapter 2, I want to consider Peter's sermon in three parts on the message of Pentecost. First part being prophecy fulfilled today that we'll consider in verses 14 to 21. Then Jesus of Nazareth in verses 22 to 36. And then how to be forgiven in verses 37 to 41. Our Lord promised that he would build his church. And his death and resurrection and ascension back to heaven took place as the Spirit of God was preparing to come at Pentecost. This is a significant time because when Peter preached that sermon on the steps of the temple at Pentecost, thousands of people came to know Jesus Christ and the New Testament church was born. Peter began with questions that the crowd was asking about the phenomena of Pentecost. He then shifts to a focus on the person of Jesus, and then he concludes with an emphasis on forgiveness. Now he appeals, as we see often in the New Testament, to the people to listen, to hear. He who has ears to hear, let him listen. Make sure that you're listening carefully to these words. And some had mocked the servants of God, thinking that somehow they were drunk, and Peter refutes that. He tells them that the phenomenon that they heard and that they saw had actually been prophesied by Joel in the Old Testament. Then he quotes directly from Joel chapter 2, along with citations from Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. Now, you remember a little bit about the context of what took place in Joel and his prophecy. It was originally given after a locust plague had ravaged the land and created a famine. So Joel announces that the day of the Lord is coming. And when the day of the Lord comes, it would be a manifestation of the righteousness and the mercy of God upon the people. So Joel issues this call to the people to repent, and he promised that they would experience restoration. Now, he emphasizes the coming day of the Lord in the future or the dawn of the Messianic age. 
And he emphasizes the Spirit of God being poured out. And then Peter delivers this sermon in fulfillment of that, and it is a phenomenal sermon. It's not only a phenomenal sermon because of the content of the sermon, it's a phenomenal sermon because of the one who delivered it. Remember Peter, the one who had denied Jesus three times? The one who uh, was always just a step ahead of the others, sometimes in a good way and other times in a not-so-good way? And now here he is standing, filled with the Spirit of God, telling them about Jesus and calling them to commitment. So I want to pick up reading in Acts chapter 2 and verse 14, and we'll read through verse 21. It says, Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and proclaimed to them, Fellow Jews and all you residents of Jerusalem, let me explain this to you and pay attention to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only nine in the morning. On the contrary, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. Verse 17. And it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. Then your sons and your daughters will prophesy, your young men will see visions, and your old men will dream dreams. I will even pour out my spirit on my servants in those days, both men and women, and they will prophesy. I will display wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and a cloud of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord comes. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. I want to show you, first of all, in this sermon that God said he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Verses 17 and 18. Peter explains what they saw, and he tells them this is a fulfillment of Scripture. So Peter's standing before the people, and he's basically saying, Joel told us about all of this. God prophesied through this man what we could expect and what would take place. And in the last days is a common Jewish expression used to describe the messianic age in which God would accomplish the promises that he made to his people. Now remember, there's never been a promise that God has made that he has not fulfilled or will not fulfill. He can always be trusted. And the future age was to be inaugurated, at least in some sense, because the Messiah Jesus had come and the Spirit is now being poured out on the people. Peter was confident that the Messianic age had already dawned in the resurrection of Jesus. And the day of the Lord includes a special manifestation of the Lord's power and glory and justice. He says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. So a time was coming, they were to anticipate this, when God would let all people share in the Spirit. All people means upon all flesh. So the outpouring on the 120 who were gathered there in the upper room was not the fulfillment, but it was the beginning of the fulfillment. And the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the pouring out of God's Spirit to fill, to indwell, and to empower the people had been prophesied in the Old Testament 
but now it's realized in the New Testament. Isaiah 44 and verse 3, the prophet says, I will pour water on the thirsty land, speaking from God's perspective and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. So this outpouring of the Holy Spirit marked the beginning of the church age. Remember in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit empowered God's people and seemed to work situationally. He, he seemed to come upon certain people at certain times for certain tasks and empower them to do whatever God was calling them to do. I think about Saul when he was anointed king and the Holy Spirit came upon him and God blessed him. But then when he turned aside, God's Spirit departed from him. The Holy Spirit worked at specific times in the lives of the judges as they led the people of God and they were empowered to do certain things. But now at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was permanently poured out to indwell every single believer in Christ. And this pouring out of the Spirit is a theme that comes up several times in the book of Acts. The first is here when the Jews and the proselytes in Jerusalem heard the message of the gospel in Acts chapter 2. The second is to a group of believing Samaritans in Acts chapter 8. And then a group of believing Gentiles in Acts chapter 10 as the gospel spread. But the consistent thread through all of that is the pouring out of God's Spirit upon the people. And the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, as we think about our framework for our understanding who the Holy Spirit is as the third person of the Trinity, is that the Holy Spirit baptizes us into the family of God when we have faith in Jesus. At the same time, he seals us for the day of redemption. So that means that when you repent and you believe in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you're baptized into the family of God, you're sealed for the day of redemption, so you're outcome is guaranteed you are indwelled because the spirit comes to take up residence in your life permanently and then as you surrender your life to the spirit and you are filled with the spirit on an ongoing basis you are empowered by the holy spirit to live for god so if you're going to live for god a, a life that honors him and that points people to jesus you're going to have to depend on the spirit to empower your life to do that. And this outpouring represents the permanent presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we believe. So what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? We're indwelled with Him at salvation, but what does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? It means to be empowered or to be made full or complete because of God's presence in your life. Now, I'd like to think about it this way, and I don't even remember where I read this, but it's, it's something that I've, I've thought about through the years that I think applies well uh, in this particular chapter. Someone said Bethlehem represents God with us. Calvary represents God for us. And Pentecost represents God in us. Let me say that again. Bethlehem represents God with us. That's the incarnation. Calvary represents God for us. That's the sacrifice that Jesus made on our behalf. And Pentecost represents God in us in the presence of the Spirit in our lives. Now, unfortunately, a lot of professing believers live in the strength of their own flesh rather than in the power of the Spirit. 
and we get the results that we might expect because our strength is so small as compared to the strength of God. Vance Havner, the preacher, said years ago, we're seeing much today of service without the Spirit. There's an appalling ignorance of the person and work of the Holy Spirit in our great church bodies. It is not what is done for God that counts, but rather what is done by Him, the work of His Spirit through our yielded wills. He said, sad to say, we seem not even to know that we have not the Spirit in power. And if He ceased His work, many church members would never know the difference. The Spirit-filled life should be the normal Christian life. It shouldn't be for the super spiritual or those who are in formal roles of ministry or whatever the case might be. It should be the normal Christian life. And I say to you that the greatest need we have in the Christian life and in the church is the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what we need. We need the power of the Holy Spirit because we want to see people come to know Jesus Christ. We want to see victory in our own lives. We want to see God work and set us free and use us for the things that he wants to use us for so that we can be salt and light in the world. And the only way that that can be a a reality is if we have the power of God at work in us. He said, well, what are some characteristics of a spirit-filled life and a spirit-filled church? Well, I think Acts gives us the pattern. Uh, It's a focus on Jesus and the gospel and what he's done. It's being united in prayer and praying in dependence on God. Not just united, but also in our own lives. When was the last time you got down on your face before God and you cried out to him in desperation because you believed that the only way that your prayer could be answered was through his power. And you put yourself in a position where you are depending on him, maybe like you haven't in a long time, or maybe like you've never depended on him. And you did that because you believed that the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead is the same power that you are relying on in your prayer. This is why the power of the Spirit in the indwelling of the Spirit, in the filling of the Spirit, is so important. And I think we'll also be filled with boldness, proclaiming the truth. That's the difference, I believe, between Peter in the courtyard denying Jesus and Peter on the steps of the temple filled with boldness, proclaiming Jesus to the hearers. And then I think we'll bear the fruit of the Spirit in our lives Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. These are things that will be evident in us. So being filled with the Spirit is the key to growth and the likeness of Jesus and the key to spiritual maturity. And it's a continual process because we have the indwelling presence of God's Spirit in our lives. Now there's a big contrast between Spirit-filled people and people that walk in the flesh. Spirit-filled people are prayerful people of faith who are unashamed of the gospel, who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, who glorify God with their lives. It's an imperfect process. We're all works in progress. We're all a couple steps forward and three steps back and then maybe four or five forward. And, and yet God is patient with us along the way. 
Now, we like to put on a good front, and we like other people to think well about us, but we know ourselves, and we know the spiritual journey that we've been on. If we've been a Christian at all, we know how patient God has been with us along the way, and we know how he's lovingly shepherded us and, and grown us to be more like Jesus. And people who walk in the flesh are selfish people who are not bold in the gospel, who do not exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, but rather the works of the flesh. And they often care more about their own preferences than they do the glory of God. Peter says, sons and daughters would prophesy and young men would see visions and old men would dream dreams. Now, what are we to make here of these visions and dreams? To see visions and dream dreams was biblically a way of receiving divine revelation. And you can think about the distinction between the visions and the dreams in this way. Visions were received when people were awake. Dreams were received when people were asleep. And can God speak through a vision or a dream today? God can do as he pleases. But I'll tell you this. The primary way that God communicates to us today is through his word, which is authenticated by his spirit. It was breathed out by his spirit to begin with. And I can assure you that God will never lead anybody to do anything that is contrary to his word. So you got people running around saying, well, God told me to do this and God told me to do that. And, and uh, sometimes it doesn't line up with the word of God. So I can tell you this for sure. If you tell me that God told you to do something and it is contrary to the scripture, God didn't tell you to do that. It might have been yourself that wanted to do it, or it might have been the devil that was trying to confuse you, or it might have been somebody else in your life that doesn't know the Scripture, but it was not God who told you to do that. So the Word is our anchor. And even this prophecy was partially fulfilled in the early years of the church. I think about Philip the evangelist. His daughters prophesied. I think about Paul seeing a vision of a man inviting him to Macedonia to come and to minister there and to do mission there. I think about Agabus who prophesied a great famine in Acts chapter 11. Or Cornelius who saw an angel in a vision and who told him to send for Peter. So he sent for Peter and Peter preached the gospel and Cornelius and his entire family was saved. Today the Bible is the primary way that God communicates with us and God said he would pour out his spirit on all flesh. Fulfilled at Pentecost, realized in the church age, and ultimately known in the presence of God in eternity. And then second, God said there would be a time of judgment to follow. Verses 19 and 20. God said there would be a time of judgment to follow. This is an explanation in part of what will happen to people who do not repent of their sins and turn to God. Peter did not know or indicate when the judgments here uh, that are referenced would take place. He's not indicating that they were completely fulfilled on the day of Pentecost, but rather that they would be related to the great and the glorious day of the Lord. Some connected the signs in the heavens back to the darkening of the skies on the day of the crucifixion of Jesus. Others have interpreted the signs as symbols for any major judgments, whether it be volcanoes or earthquakes or fires or whatever. 
There was also a a symbolic fulfillment when Titus, the Roman general, destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD. However, Revelation 6 predicts that these same signs will take place when the Lamb breaks the sixth seal during the Great Tribulation. Hell and fire will fall from the sky, and a third of the earth will burn. A third of the sun, moon, and stars will be darkened. Later, a third of mankind will die in fire and smoke. And wonders in the heavens and signs on the earth are, are mighty acts of God over all of his creation. So I think the literal and ultimate fulfillment awaits a time of future judgment. But what about this subject of, of judgment? The timing of it is not unimportant, but it's not of utmost importance. The timing of it is important for us to be concerned about, but what's more important for us to understand and be certain of is God's judgment. And we're certain of this because God is a holy God who is the God of justice. In fact, Psalm 45 and verse 6 says, a scepter of justice will be the scepter of your kingdom. Jesus has been entrusted as the primary agent of judgment. John 5 and verse 22 says the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son. So I want us to think for a few moments about this whole subject of judgment. And I want us to think about it in terms of the judgments that have already taken place, the judgments that should be taking place here and now in the church age, and the judgments that will take place in the future. So what are the judgments that have already taken place? Think about Adam and Eve. After they fell and they sinned and disobeyed God, they were banished from the Garden of Eden. Or what about the world when God sent a worldwide flood in judgment of sin in Noah's day? The Tower of Babel in Genesis 11 when God confounded the language of the people and he dispersed them because of what they were trying to accomplish together. Egypt and their false gods Uh, prior to the exodus of the Hebrews from Egypt, and God brought the plagues, and he brought judgment upon them. But oh, let me tell you about the greatest judgment that's ever uh, ever taken place. The greatest judgment that has ever taken place is when our sins were judged on the cross. And what happened when our sins were judged on the cross is that the Lord Jesus Christ took our sins upon himself, God made the one who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And what was taking place at the cross is that the sinless son of God, the the perfect lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, he died on that cross. And when he died on that cross, he was dying as the substitution for our sins. He was bearing the penalty that we deserved. He was taking the punishment that was ours. And the very wrath of God rested upon him. The the wrath of God as judgment on sin was upon Jesus on the cross. And because our sins were judged at at the cross, when our faith is in Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1 says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now church, if we believe that, and we should and we do collectively, then it should show us the futility of a works-based mindset. 
it should show us the futility, first of all, of the religions of the world that somehow present that they can do something to be acceptable to God. Or they can somehow offer God some measure of good works, whatever the God of their making is, and somehow be accepted before Him. I want you to understand that there is nothing that we can offer that could measure up to the righteousness of God. In fact, if we were to stand before God and we were to start going through a list of the things that we've done and, and somehow try to convince God that we had been righteous enough to enter into heaven and to enter into his presence, he would tell us that our righteousness is nothing but filthy rags. We bring nothing I want you to understand that we take no credit for our salvation. I take no credit for my salvation. Someday when I stand before God in heaven and, and I stand forgiven, it will be because of the finished work of Jesus. And God will see me and God will see you through the righteousness of Jesus and you will have been justified and accepted and you will stand complete in his sight. All because of the judgment that he took upon himself. And then there's some judgments that are to take place in the church age. There's the judgment of self-examination. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 28, let a person examine himself. Uh, the judgment of the church dealing with sin in the camp. There's an entire framework in Matthew chapter 18. There's the judgment of God as our Father bringing discipline to us as His children in terms of His correction and leading us to repentance and restoration. He's purifying us to make us more like Jesus. And these are things that should be evident in the church today. But there are some judgments that are going to take place in the future. You say, what are those judgments in the future? Well, in part, the tribulation period. In Revelation, when the seven seals are opened and the seven trumpets are blown and the seven bowls are poured out, God's judgment against the wicked will in part result in an ingathering of believers from among the chosen people. We have also the judgment seat of Christ in 2 Corinthians 5, where we'll be judged not for our sins, but we'll be judged for the rewards that God will give us uh, eternally in our faithfulness and service to Christ. There's the judgment of the nations in Matthew chapter 25, when the nations will be judged according to how they related to Israel, specifically during the tribulation. There'll be the judgment of angels in 1 Corinthians 6, where the judgment of angels by believers is presumably upon the fallen angels. And then ultimately, there'll be the great white throne judgment of Revelation 20, which will be the final judgment of unbelievers for their sins. And then Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. So what is the Holy Spirit doing in the meantime? He's convicting the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. And he's pointing to Jesus. That's what he's doing. That's his, that's his role. And as he does that, he's comforting us, counseling us, empowering us, guiding us. And Peter made it clear to the audience that if they wanted to escape God's wrath in this life or in the, in the next, they needed to repent. God said there will be a time of judgment to follow. But now we come to the best news of all. God said everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 21. The great grace and mercy of our God is on display in this message. Peter linked the phenomenon of Pentecost to Joel's prophecy about the outpouring of God's Spirit in the last days. So here we have the, 
the day of Messiah has dawned, ushered in the beginning of the last days. Peter brings up the subject of God's judgment, and now he lays out clearly for all to see and hear and understand and believe God's grace and mercy to all who will receive it. Everyone means everyone. All means all. And this is a message of God's plan of salvation that can save everyone or all who will hear it and receive it by faith. But the key here is those who call on the name of the Lord. All of us have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there's a price to be paid for our sin. Jesus paid that price on our behalf. The gospel is that Jesus died and was buried and rose from the dead. But when we think about the name of Jesus, it encompasses something more than just what someone is called. It encompasses the character of the one that we're calling on. It encompasses the power of the one that we're calling on. It encompasses the call of the one that we are crying out to. And his name represents power, the power to be saved. I remember uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 where the angel said to Joseph, And you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. So it's the character, the authority, the power, the deity of Jesus. And to call on the name of the Lord is to ask the Lord to save your soul. And I'm thankful that God saves people who repent and believe. He saved a dying thief. Jesus saved a sinful woman. He saved an ungodly tax collector. He saved a Roman centurion. He saved a demon-possessed man and a demon-possessed girl. He saved a wealthy businesswoman and more. And I'm thankful God saved all those people. But you know what I'm most thankful for personally? I am most thankful for the fact that God saved my soul. And I can remember the night that I got saved. I had heard a faithful presentation of the gospel 44 years ago in an evening service, 45 in February of this coming year. And I remember the gospel coming alive like I had never felt it come alive before. And I knew in that moment that I was a sinner and that I was in need of a Savior. And I didn't understand all the finer points of theology and I didn't understand all the details of what that meant. But I knew that I needed to be forgiven. I knew that I didn't want to spend eternity in hell. And I knew that Jesus is a great Savior. And I repented of my sins that night. And I trusted in Jesus. And let me tell you what, I have never gotten over it. I've never gotten over it. Can you remember when you came to faith in Christ? Can you remember that moment when you were brought face to face with your sins? And, and you came face to face with your brokenness and your undoneness and of your need for God's grace and mercy? That's what salvation is. And the promise is that if we call in the name of the Lord, we will be saved. And to be saved literally means to rescue from all harm or danger. And again, 1 John 2 and verse 2 says, He himself, Jesus, is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. Jesus paid it all. 
And salvation brings forgiveness of sins. It brings deliverance from the wrath of God. It gives us security and no condemnation in Christ. It brings us to a changed life. But let me tell you something else. It guarantees a home in heaven with God. Can you imagine that there's going to be a time when we're going to be gathered around the throne of God? We're not going to be there by our own merit. We're going to be there because of what Jesus has done for us. And we're going to be in the very presence of God. And in the presence of God, there'll be no more sin. In the presence of God, there'll be no more pain. In the presence of God, there'll be no more tears. We'll be in the presence of the glory of God for all of eternity. That's what salvation represents. And I want to encourage some of you that are... You're going through the motions. You're going through a religious exercise. But inside of you, you know that you're not experiencing the power of God. You know that you're not experiencing the life-transforming power of the gospel. And God is telling you there's more to this Christian life than just going through the motions. It is life with God. And the gospel is to be shared so that people can be saved and the kingdom of God can advance. Now watch this. Everything you need to be saved is found right here. And everything you need to share is found right here. And there is power in an invitation from God to salvation. What does an invitation do? If you get an invitation to something that's a pleasant experience, an invitation makes you feel wanted and invites you to something that is good. So what's happening here? What's happening here is God is inviting sinners to repent and believe and to receive the best of all that could ever be received. Forgiveness, salvation, reconciliation, life with God. And God is inviting people to Him. But we're the witnesses. We're the messengers. We're calling people to repentance and faith. We're following the pattern of Andrew who invited Peter to meet Jesus. The pattern of Philip who invited Nathaniel to meet Jesus. The Samaritan woman who invited her neighbors. Matthew who gave a feast to introduce Jesus. Cornelius who invited his family and friends to come and hear Peter bring the message. And that's what we're doing. We're inviting. And you know what I'm really thankful for? I'm thankful somebody invited me and told me how to be saved. I'm thankful that the gospel was made clear. And here's what I want you to do in response to that if you are a follower of Jesus. I want you to identify at least one person. If you know more, that's fine. But I want you to identify at least one person in your life in your sphere of influence who does not have a relationship with Jesus. Now, if you can't think of anybody, that might be a starting prayer. Lord, put me in the path and open my eyes spiritually so I can see the people around me who are in need. But identify those, those people or that person. And then I want you to begin to intercede and to pray for them. Just ask the Lord to do something in their life. And there's a couple of things I think happen sometimes as Christians. We forget what it was like to be lost. And then we don't have faith, really, that God can change certain people. You look at them and you think, oh my goodness, he's too far gone. Oh my goodness, there's no way she would ever believe. 
We go off on what they might initially tell us. And oftentimes when we share the gospel with somebody, the first time that we share it, they don't receive it. They don't agree. And oftentimes it's a process where they, they hear it again and again, and God's at work in their lives. And there are these things that are intersecting, and God brings them by the power of the Holy Spirit and convicts them of their need for Him. That's what He does for us. But I want you to intercede and ask God to do something, and then I want you to invest in those people. Try to build a relationship, but don't use the relationship as an excuse not to share. There's divine appointments where we need, need to share our testimony briefly or we need to invite somebody maybe that we've not even known or we might have just met but we tell them the truth about jesus and then we invite do you know people cannot accept an invitation they never receive we got to invite them to follow jesus identify intercede invest and invite three thousand people got saved on the day of pentecost could it be that there are some of you here today who need to hear Jesus in the invitation and repent and believe? Whatever, there's just one who would say yes to the gospel and come and follow Jesus. The Bible says that the angels in heaven would rejoice. So here we have Peter. Prophecy represents truth-telling as well as anticipation of things still to come. Prophecy draws on images of the past. It evaluates activities of the present and it points to promises in the future. And I conclude with this. At Pentecost, God poured out his spirit and the church was born. He warns of judgment to come and he invites people to know Jesus. As we've worked our way through this passage today, we've been reminded of what God did in pouring out His Spirit at Pentecost, of the birth of the church that we now get to be a part of. We've been warned of the judgment that's coming, and now the invitation has been extended. If you've already received it, you need to extend it to somebody else. But if you haven't received it, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. Let's bow our heads together for a moment as we pray. I don't know what all the needs are here in this room today, but God does. If you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, are you living as a person who is indwelled by the God of the universe, who is empowered to live in a way that honors Him? If you're not, today could be a day of renewal for you. You say, God, I don't want to go through the motions. I want my heart to be stirred. And I want my life to count. Maybe there's somebody here that needs to know Jesus. You say, Pastor, I know I'm not a Christian. I know that if I were to die tonight, I would not go to be in the presence of God. That could change today. If you will confess through your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you'll believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Father, thank you for these moments you've given us today. It's been such a blessing. Thank you for your spirit. Forgive us for doing so many things in the strength of our own flesh and not relying on the power of your spirit. 
And God, in this moment, I, I cry out to you, we cry out to you, and we plead with you for the power of your Spirit in this church. We plead with you, Father, that we would not be going through religious exercises. We plead with you, Father, that we would know resurrection power, resurrection power that is the power to break us free from addictions. It's the power to, to, to break us free from strongholds. It's, it's the power to, to overcome our fears and our anxieties. It's the power to help us in our moments of weakness. And Lord, we need that power. We, we depend on that power. So go, God, would you fill us with your spirit? Fill us with your spirit, Lord that we might live lives that honor and glorify your great name. And we give this time of close and response over to you if there are decisions that need to be made. I pray that people would come. We ask it in Jesus' name.